I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show well about everything. A little later in the show, I was joined for a quick and fun chat with Keanu Reeves and Alex Winter, the stars of Bill and Ted Face the Music, which is available in theaters and on VOD this weekend. But first, we are joined by our counterparts in pop cultural podcasting here at The Ringer, Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald of The Watch. Great to see you, Sean. Thank you so much. Andy and I are kind of been, we've been traveling through time in a phone booth on our podcast for a long time. So it's great to be sharing this pod with you and, and with Keanu and Alex. I think it's amazing to be an opening act, as it were, to <laughs> legends such as that. You're being very generous with your time. Um, also, I just want to say, working with you guys, Sean and Amanda, is nothing less than inspiring, often intimidating, because before you record a podcast, you send like a rundown with ideas and and like an order. Must be nice. I had no idea. Like, this is really interesting that's to me. A, that was a generous, like, collective you guys, <laughs> which is really just Sean sends an outline at like 3 a.m. Yeah. That is just like, here are all the things that I would like to talk about. And, but I do get to add some things. <laughs> and you sometimes add, I tell you that you're wrong. I want you to add as much as you want. <laughs> I do. I added one thing to this outline, actually. I don't know if you spotted it. I haven't yet, but I look forward to seeing Here's it when thing, I scroll guys. through. Everybody has a process. And Chris and I just like to find it in the booth. You know what I mean? We just... <laughs> Yeah, we don't. No pens. No yeah, pens. You're no like pen um, you're like fish or widespread panic. I was going for Jay Z, but that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. All the great improv- improvisators. So, you guys have been podcasting together for eight plus years. Yeah, and we the four of us have never done a podcast together. I think in the history of is that right? We have done um, pre shows and after shows wearing tuxedos, and Amanda had a fabulous gown. That's for right. Two years worth of Oscars. Um, including the year when Moonlight uh, shocked the world. Right. Um, but I don't know if we ever, the four of us, we've certainly never done one alfresco like we're doing it now. Yeah, so we're in my, we're on my back porch. We're socially distanced mm-hmm. on my back porch. I will say, perhaps I've made a mistake. It's quite hot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is not comfortable. And recording via Zoom has allowed me to record in air conditioning for the last six months, and we don't have that right now. I thought this was an homage to your favorite Danny Boyle film, 2007 Sunshine. Huge fan. In which a group of people fly into the sun. Because that's my feeling right now. Uh, did, did I fuck this up, Chris? No, this is a great idea. Why don't you tell people what we're doing here together, though? Uh, so this is, um, this is sort of the uh, DC Marvel team-up. This is the two worlds colliding. We're going to be talking about... No, I'm sorry. Yeah, also, please know who's who. I don't want to go down that road. You are definitely um, dark side, I would say. Don't know who that is, but okay. (laughs) Oh, you will on HBO Max (laughs) next year. Four nights. So we're going to talk about movies and television. And the fact that I think every movie feels like a TV show to me lately. And every TV show, I think, is starting to feel like a movie. And Andy, you brought this up on a recent episode of The Watch. And Amanda and I have been talking about it basically for the last year about how there seems to be this agglomeration of content and it's really hard to tell what is what and the difference between those two things. So I thought we could just kind of have like a rollicking conversation about how things got this way and where they're going and why. And Andy, I mean, especially having just made a series now, you have particular insight into the decisions that are made and why and, you know. It's nice to be on a podcast where I'm treated with respect. (laughs) You know, I just want to say like... Thank you. Yeah. And Chris, you um, are a, a man. That's right. Who, Great guy. Who is alive. <laughs> a guy who watches Yellowstone, you know? <laughs> That's right. So where do we begin this conversation? I, I thought we could actually start it with the movies that are actually coming out into movie theaters this week. Because this is the first real movie theater release weekend. We're not going to talk about what is in those movies, but what those movies represent. Because I think they're kind of an interesting jumping off point. So as I mentioned, Alex and, and Keanu were on the episode to talk about Bill and Ted. 
That's the third movie in a series. They haven't made a Bill and Ted movie in 29 years. And still there's a sense that like, the IP matters. You guys are, I don't know, you're, you're purveyors of IP. You kind of, you kind of invented the conversation around IP. Well, I mean, we ways. just, we definitely, like, this is the kind of thing that I think we would have joked about eight years ago. And now it's happening. Like, oh, like next thing you know, they'll be making another, another Bill and Ted movie. And little did we know. And then the other movie that's coming out is The New Mutants. I think it is extremely on brand for 2020 that the first movie to welcome people back into the viral hotspots that are America's movie theaters is a purported disaster piece that is over three years in the making that no one from audiences to Fox to Disney seem to actually want. So I think that's perfect. I'm very excited about it. Are you excited, Amanda? The mutants that are new? Yes. Yeah, I can't wait. I, <laughs> wait, I, I, have, I understand what the movie's about now. Wait, Amanda, and, can I check in with you? Yeah. Were you finished with the old mutants? Had you had enough? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think that um, these are necessarily indicative of specifically what people want for movies. Uh, Bill and Ted Face the Music, we should say, is not only going to be in theaters. Yeah. If you want to watch it at home, you can. And, and I just assume most people will. I don't. It I is New know. Mutants. What's the window on that? Like, are we going to get New Mutants on VOD? And in I think four it has weeks? to play in theaters for um, three decades before it will come to VOD. <laughs> That's what I read. You guys can fact check me on that. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't know how long they're going to let it play. There's obviously been a lot of conversation about how long Tenet is going to play when it opens a week from now, because there are only one or two other releases earmarked for September. So theoretically, Tenet could play 4,500 movie theaters for four straight weeks, which I don't know if that's ever been done before. I don't know if there's been that high a theater count because mm-hmm. nothing else is even coming out. But, you know, so those movies that are coming out this weekend are part of that larger IP conversation that you guys have been having over years. But I don't think that they are really representative of television in any way. They're, right. you know, New Mutants in particular is the part of this dead economy of X-Men movies mm-hmm. that they don't make anymore. Like they're, they're burning off the remainder yeah. of it, yeah. Also, specifically, it's from an era, recent era of cinematic history where comic book IP is used to Trojan horse homages to older movies, right? Because this is inspired by somehow both John Hughes and John Carpenter, yes. I guess, at the same time, um, which is very much different. It's very much a different strategy than what Marvel is doing, at least in terms of its turning its movies into TV shows, which are set to premiere at some point once production fires up again in Slovakia. Yeah, this was definitely like a post-Deadpool idea where they were like, oh, wait, we could make an R-rated movie that has like a bunch of different genre references. And if we make it cheaper... We'll let you play with the name X-Men. But, I mean, Amanda, you were like, I can't imagine that you would be even more excited to see a superhero movie if you knew it was also a horror movie, right? Yeah, no. I literally had to ask Sean what the plot of this movie was last but week. But I don't think anybody knows, right? No, but what's amazing is also I have been making New Mutants jokes for like four <laughs> to five months now because this has just become a talking point. And a lot of that is because of the pandemic and because the way the industry has changed. And so now you know, everything that is possibly going to be in theaters in the next three months has become a political football and has like a extra movie life of its own where we just like talk about the movie without consuming it. But like, trust me, I will never see New Mutants. And I will always remember that it was like the the movie that opened in theaters I, at the end of August. I don't want to uh, lump them together other than the fact that you did to begin the podcast, Sean. But because I think the Bill and Ted thing seems to have come from a place of genuine like goodwill and Absolutely. good spirit and they wanted to have fun and they're friends yes. and they're all friends Absolutely. Um, and Immunes does not seem like it was born of that kind of process but both of them definitely can be categorized under a very specific genre of Hollywood which is who exactly is going to get this and who is this for and with Bill and Ted as you said it's a 30 year old piece of IP but at least there's a recognizable movie star in it 
New Mutants, it's not just that it's, I mean, when X-Men movies were cooking, the idea of making another one with younger, hotter people, great, that seems like a no-brainer. But specifically, and I'm talking to you, Amanda, mm -hmm. this is apparently deeply inspired, if not mostly cribbed from, a seminal comic book storyline from the early 80s by Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz called Demon Bear, the <laughs> Demon Bear saga, <laughs> starring characters who have not mainstreamed since. Like, they're back in play in the X-Men comics now, but they've always been kind of the other guys. So can I just ask a clarifying question? Yeah. So they are X-Men, but not and the X-Men? So in the early 80s, when X-Men comics were very popular, maybe more popular than they've ever been, um, Cyclops, Wolverine, all these people who you them. love, yeah. the old mutants, I we'll call them. I saw the Wolverine movie, they, Logan. It, it had gone away from the core idea at the original... At the, at the start of the X-Men, which was this was a school for gifted youngsters, aka mutants. So they were like, let's start the school part again and bring in a new class. So these were the new class of mutants and they were like teen stories. But but not the first class. No. That would, would be, these be considered part of a sequel or a prequel shot? We don't know yet oh, because okay. we don't know if any of the it's like canon, the third or fourth class. Well, the, there may be canon X-Men characters in this movie that we don't know about. It, but, it, but so you take this story that no one except me and everyone exactly like me remembers. And then you adapt it by Josh Boone insisting that it should both be a horror movie and also a Stranger Things from the 80s. And all those are all things. Those are all identifiable, recognizable things, right? But collect them into one film. And who's, let me, who's that for? Let me play Demon Bear Advocate, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Were we having the same conversation about Guardians of the Galaxy? Aren't... Isn't yeah. it the story of a lot of huge commercial, at least, successes over the last few years where somebody was like, that'll never work. The Suicide Squad. You right. were serious about that? And then so so, so the counter to that is, if James Gunn does it, it'll probably work. But the right. first Suicide Squad didn't, right? It so, made a ton of money. Did it? Well, the thing is, there's I don't see movies. Is that a, am I disqualified <laughs> from being on this podcast? There's no way to understand whether or not this is actually going to work or not work, right? Because we're in the middle of a pandemic, and so there's going to be a reluctance to go to theaters. And also, there's not going to be a New Mutants 2. These, yeah. these characters it's, are going to get absorbed into the Disney world. But not to... Try to. I'm looking at this document you sent us, and it's really a good rundown, Sean. I'm really impressed, Andy. Thank you. Not, not to not to steer us back onto that, but in 2020, if Josh Boone, who is just finishing up his multi-part adaptation of Stephen King's The Stand for for uh, CBS All Access, if he pitched Fox Disney on a young X-Men Stranger Things, that could be greenlit as a Disney Plus show. That makes more sense as a TV show than saying I'm going to start a new franchise with people you don't know. Uh, in a genre you're not prepared for. Do you think that because of things like this, that movies are at a turning point or is it mostly just that this has been a 10 year story? And yeah. Andy's cynicism about this idea, which he is, I, it, it's very well earned, but his cynicism, what he just said is they shouldn't make a movie about this. Like they shouldn't do a two hour horror teen comedy about New Mutants, which, like, if I was running a studio, I would say, that sounds like a really good idea for a movie. Most horror movies have a com comic element or have, like, a kind of setup where you're supposed to get invested in the characters and all the better if they're teens and they're going through stuff. And all, you want to set it in one setting and have it be a horror movie? Fantastic. We'll get in, we'll get out. Horror movies are cheap to make. Horror movies make a lot of money. Added X-Men on top of it, that seems like you're printing money. Well, but what Andy said is not... That, that you shouldn't make it a movie. He said they should make it a TV show instead. 
which is like kind of the difference and is a thing that we wind up talking about a lot and that you guys come to as well, which is like, and I do feel like it's often we use it a bit as a crutch. When something isn't quite working, we're just like, well, maybe if it had been in the other medium, then it would have worked. Right. But 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 I do think that there is a distinction there. The that other, is what we're talking about. The other thing that is at the root of this is um, investment and just economics in general, right? Because what makes something a comic book story, the thing that made the Marvel Universe beloved and groundbreaking, was that it was told like a comic book, meaning it was told over 20 movies. And everything since then, has been begun with the intention for it to go three to 20 films in the future. Right. So the movie itself is not really telling one story. It's Mm -hmm. setting you up for all the other stories, which is kind of cost prohibitive and increasingly so. So Marvel even recognizing that by pivoting to a more cost effective serialized format, which is my beloved television, uh, that makes sense to me. And that's the crux of this conversation. It's essentially our movie studios thinking more like television studios of old. How can we milk as much content out of this idea as possible over years and years and years? While TV shows more and more are like, hey, we can get we can get Reese for for nine weeks. What can we what can we do here with like little fires everywhere? Or what can we do here with Nicole Kidman for t- three, six months or whatever? And that's like a complete flip of the thinking, I think. Also, I, I want to ask you guys, Sean and Amanda, about this, but I feel like is is the Ur text from this era that Warner Brothers document from Comic Con a few years ago that just plotted out their release schedule with TBD DC movie, May 2022, June 2023. And like, it's the ultimate hubris that they were read that they, but it's not just hubris because it's a document that circulated. It's that millions of dollars and years of thinking went into planning for that. And then they had to rip it up and start it again on the fly. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to credit Mark Harris on this. He's been writing about it for almost 10 years, but the the landing on tentpole release dates studio strategy, which I think starts probably in the late 2000s, early 2010s, is not just bound by expanded IP. Like you would see in 2011, um, Universal Event Movie for 2025. Was it a Dark Universe movie? We, we, you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't know until five years later when they told you it was. And then when they canceled the Dark Universe, they replaced it with something else that they had been developing in tandem. So it feels like I don't know if that moment is necessarily ending. What is actually happening, I think, is that that moment is the only thing that is going to be movies. Like that strategy, five years from now, may really be the only movie that I'm sure is going to come out before I die is like Thor Love and Thunder. You know, like everything else, who the fuck knows? Like, I'd, I'd take it. I, I'm excited about that movie, yeah. but those, there's only a handful of films that you, you know will be guaranteed an opportunity to be released as movies instead of TV shows. But the thing that I was thinking of as you guys were talking about this, and probably the best example, and I'm getting ahead of the watch edition of this conversation, is The Mandalorian. Because that, for years, Star Wars nerds like myself were like, I need the Boba Fett movie. Mm-hmm. That's the movie that I think would be cool. I hadn't even really considered what a Boba Fett movie would be. I was just like, just so put you, Boba Fett So you're Fett like Josh Trank in that regard. Well, unfortunately, perhaps. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but I didn't really think about what was a two-hour Boba Fett movie. I just want to see more Boba Fett because I'm perpetually 11. And... Disney decided it would be better to make that a cool TV show. And frankly, that was the right choice. Like, yes. I don't think anybody feels like The Mandalorian was a mistake. It was, a gr- it was one of the great Especially IP moves of the last 10 the, years. With the nosedive that the, the movie franchise hit took. It, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I don't, what, what, do you, what do you think? I mean, I think what you just said, um, I have not seen an episode of The Mandalorian, though I did watch all of the Baby Yoda highlights. So I feel like I, I have a <laughs> sense of it. I'm also just 
unbelievably pro Baby Yoda. I just want to come out if I haven't made that clear. Are yes you speaking at the Yoda. RNC about Baby Yoda tonight? <laughs> okay. You know what? We talked before this podcast started about not getting too loose. Please do not put me in the same sentence okay. as the RNC. Sorry, I Baby Yoda only. Can I just tell you something really quick? Yeah. Uh, last Friday, I had a really good round of golf. Like, I really okay. played well. No, we don't have to get into the, the sundry details. About I actually it. did hear that you were giving me a stroke. I did I, win I, I heard skins that, that we were but playing. I did. I did hear independently from you that it was a good round of golf for me. But here's here's how here's the power of Baby Yoda. I texted my wife and I was like, "I'm on fire. Like I'm. This is the round of my life. Not to jinx it, but I just want to let you know. I'll probably be. I'm going to make these guys stay out here until there is no more light because I'm, <laughs> I'm going to fly. I'm going to get as close as I can to finish. And she responded with a text message. That was a picture of Baby Yoda holding a case of beer standing next to a bag of golf clubs. <laughs> and I was like, that's why I married you. Wow. Are you 100% sure that wasn't a photo of you? I also don't know if she didn't make that. Like, I wasn't even sure. I do have didn't to mean say, to interrupt. That's so yeah, romantic. Okay. And we, we can just build on that. I do think that your wife is like the number one collector of Baby Yoda memes. Yes. Like, that is that is not an unusual she is a meme merchant when it text comes to message Baby Yoda. Yeah. happening from... From your wife. Okay, but Baby Yoda, yes. But what you were talking about with, I believe, Boba Fett, who's a character I'm not as familiar with, but you identified that you wanted to spend more time with this character. And like, and that was the instinct. And I think that that thematically, as soon as you say something like that, I think TV, just because that is how I consume TV. And I think that is one of the core things. It's And some of it is because you are asked to spend a lot of time with these people in your home. But it is character driven. And at the end of the day, I think we've all been conditioned to be like, "Mm, I just want to spend some time in that world. And so that's a TV show to me. And that's like a very easy definition of what TV is, even though there are a lot of movies that I would like to spend time in. But somehow that's it. So it's interesting that like basically 10 or 15 years later, the industry finally caught up to that. I completely agree with that. I think that's a really, really smart summation of what this is, which is to say, if someone had a really, really good story for a bounty hunter in a galaxy far, far away, then they should make a movie about that bounty hunter. I mean, that sounds like it could be a good movie. Mm-hmm. But that's not what happened over 20 years of development, From at least from what I can tell. What happened was people just kept saying the same thing. I kind of want to hang out in the cantinas with these people and see the, you know, this, the, that side of the, of, of the Star Wars universe. That's the key difference. I think people often think that TV is essentially like, a plot machine or a plot, you know, an, an, an engine fueled by plot. But really, it's it's character more than anything else. Plot is just the thing to get the characters from one scene to another and to get people to enjoy spending time with them. And TV is where you hang out. Movies are where you pay attention. I think essentially what's happened is movies, especially the movies that we're all likely to watch together, feel more like television. Like if you look at the movies that have really succeeded since the pandemic started, since we couldn't go into movie theaters, I mean, what are they? They're Palm Springs, probably the number one example of that. And that, I think, was it, was an American Pickle that inspired what you were It was having pitching? watched both of them. And I, and I have some criteria for this category, but please. Oh, good. please well, well, I'll just, I'll list off very briefly what I think are kind of like the signature movies of the last six months. Palm Springs, an American Pickle, The Old Guard, Extraction, Trolls World Tour, unquestionably, <laughs> Hamilton. This is, just, you're going to hear Jean-Luc Godard just hit the, <laughs> hit the vape so hard. And, <laughs> and probably Black is King, the Beyonce visual album. Right. So, if those are what movies have been this year, for the most part, Bad Boys for Life and Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, notwithstanding, are movies just TV shows now? Like those are. Explain what your theory was essentially on the watch. So this was, you know, 
like many things on the podcast, which I'm very proud, Chris, it was uh, a little bit just kind of off the dome and not given it that much thought and kind of laid it out as a provocation for you too, because I want to make sure you're listening at all times, but also um, you could fact check it. But this idea that there should be a distinct genre now, which I was calling media movies, I think there's probably a better name that we could see if Rich Little is available to come up with one for us. Um, Maybe Marshall McLuhan. But he, I wish he stepped out here on your back porch. <laughs> you know uh, nothing of my movies. Also true. Um, I was thinking about like the, of the movies you mentioned, the other one that I would throw in there that fit this category, at least in my opinion, are Palm Springs, yes. American Pickle, yes. Eurovision movie. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Movie. Yeah. Did you watch that? Good call. Uh, I don't f- always feel I need to watch things to talk about them confidently. No, I just didn't know. I, mean, I didn't know if like, I feel like I'm very up to date on anything you have watched. Yeah, I don't. If I watch it, I <laughs> yeah. burn it on the podcast. I don't. <laughs> I don't watch anything. Just There's no one for me, one for them. I just. Well, that's an interesting it. pick though, because that one in particular, I think neither Amanda nor I responded to. Mm-hmm. And since so much of my movie going conversation mm-hmm. is like, do Amanda and I want to spend 40 minutes on this movie on the pod? And if not, I, it feels like it didn't happen. Yes. Which is of course kind of, ridiculous and that's that's our bubble that we've created but you're right that is definitely a movie that has emerged this year too the thing about these movies is that they so here's some here's some criteria i came up with so a budget between like five and 25 million dollars so something like project power also haven't seen it chris but i did check the budget (laughs) was it sub 25 Way over. Yeah. Oh, way, way over. over. Okay. Okay. So that's, yeah, an, yeah. that's an example. Triple yeah. fronts way over. Like yeah. those kinds yeah. of like... Extraction would be over. Don't yes. bring Triple Frontier No, I'm, I'm saying that's a, a different show. conversation. Okay. Right. That's a special movie for us. Okay. You and I. Thank but you. what so, I want so, is 10 episodes of Triple Frontier. That's the Sean, complicated no, part don't. of it. No, what you no, want is Craven the Hunter. No, you know what? That donkey had a lot more screen time. You know what I mean? Keep going. Quadruple Frontier would be the next one, I imagine. Okay, so what we're looking for is a certain budget, right? Not an art house auteur movie. So basically not Netflix throwing a bone to uh, Nicole Hall Center, Noah Baumbach, um, filling in the gap where the Angelica Film Center used to reside. Um, Not a big budget movie that got repurposed like the old guard. Um, Not... Or extraction. Or or extraction. Not something that is a little art housey, but also very, very niche, like like Velvet Buzzsaw, something like that, Mm -hmm. which has a big star doing a strange, you know, different turn. It's um, not a different turn. It's, it's the same turn he always does. Oh, okay. Jake Gyllenhaal. Please but, respect yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal. Love, please love, respect him. I love Jake Gyllenhaal being weird, okay. but let's okay. be real. that My guy just goes through it in every movie. My, anyway. God bless him. My favorite Jake Gyllenhaal movie of 2020 is the Instagram video he made for Russ and Daughters. Yeah, recently. with the yoga? Yeah. Well, and he made another one of this yeah. charity tie-dye shirt. That's some of his best work. You guys okay. have not seen the John Mulaney and the sack lunch bunch situation, have you? That's He's, true. So that's oh. a TV show. Hall is unbelievable in that. And that also was kind of a movie and kind of TV. So basically, it is something that at some point someone must have asked in the development, is this a TV show? And the answer was no. It's still a one, it's a, it's a one-off. It's a yeah. one thing. Tell the whole story. But for me, the simplest distillation of it is it's a Wednesday night, not a Saturday night. Okay. And so American Pickle, I think, is what kind of started this conversation because I enjoyed it. I was happy people made it. Seth Rogen was good in it. It did exactly what it needed to do in a very, very, very small aperture. It was not true. I mean, as Chris and I discussed, there's like three people in the movie. Yep. <laughs> yet it still somehow cost $20 million. Um, but that made no sense as a theatrical release, even without a pandemic, right? Um, and so what are we going to do with these movies that actually do, that are mo- they're movies, but I think they just make much more sense on a smaller screen. And pa- Palm Springs was the best example. Of yeah, that. Palm Springs 
split the atom there because not only was it a, a date night movie, but it also spawned like obsessive Reddit threads too. Like you could watch it on a Wednesday yeah. or a Friday. And I think the Friday thing for me is a little bit more of a genre like kind of exercise, like where it's like, ooh, let's watch Host. Let's watch something a little bit more like what's going to be the huge thing that we come out of the weekend talking about. Whereas like Wednesday, you could just be like, yeah, it's Wednesday. Let's, let's, let's watch a movie. We don't have to go like into work tomorrow. So like, let's talk about it. You know what's interesting about what you're suggesting, though, Andy, is that none of the movies that you're talking about were developed for streaming. Right. Palm Springs was a Sundance movie. Bought out of Sundance with the hope that maybe it would go to Warner Brothers, maybe it would go to an indie shingle. Wasn't it the most expensive pickup? It was in Mm -hmm. the history of Sundance by 69 cents. And it was a double buy. It was a dual buy. It was a buy between Hulu and Neon. And the original intention was to put it in movie theaters and then put it on, on Hulu. And... I think you could make the case that it actually worked out for the best, that the way that they did it was really ideal because lots of people have Hulu, especially now that Disney Plus exists and that bundle exists. A lot of people have Hulu. If you have Spotify, you might have Hulu, for example. So do you guys have Spotify? Um, no comment. Uh, <laughs> You do have Spotify. <laughs> yes, it's a great product. Okay. Don't we, get all Edward Snowden about it. You have fucking Spotify. But same thing with American Pickle. I think American Pickle was developed at a, a studio and then they decided to put it on HBO Max. And I wonder... And they spun it into a win. I think they were looking totally. at it being like, what are we doing with What this? would this be? Um, I, so I wonder, like, can you actively create a great streaming movie is kind of the question mm-hmm. I've been turning over in my head. I have a... Well, I have a similar question, and it's a little bit meant as a provocation, or just like to test Mm. your theory, but Mm -hmm. actually, I don't really think it is. I'm genuinely curious about the answer, but it was when I first heard this theory on The Watch, a podcast that I listened to. What's up, Chris Ryan? Um, Chris Ryan does not listen to the big picture. one episode. (laughs) It was one of our best episodes, okay? We shared a lot. Um, What makes a medium movie different from just the mid-budget adult movies that they made 20 years ago that we all miss and are just like, oh, they don't make them anymore. I don't have enough examples to say one way or another definitively because there could easily be something that feels like, I want to know why my brain goes to like, at the same time, like the the, the sweet spot between the television show 30-something and the Michael Keaton film Malice, like something that's like very 1989-y that doesn't exist anymore. I don't think we have enough examples to say one way or another, but um, these movies are, to my mind, a lot more uh, open-hearted and desirous of your attention. And what I mean is there's something that is essentially, people fight this all the time, but TV is very, very populist as a medium. TV, there's an expectation that it has to entertain along with enlightening or illuminating or whatever. Whereas I think, you know, as we've talked about before privately, and I'm sure on podcasts, if you go to a movie, you're kind of buying a ticket to pay attention and to push yourself a little bit or to be pushed. And so a movie, when you say that, the type of movie you're talking about, I keep thinking of like a Todd Field movie, Mm -hmm. which isn't... Like Little Children or something. Yeah, like Little Children. That's not getting made today. And that wouldn't qualify, I don't think, as this, because it's a tough hang, you know? And all the movies we're mentioning are like, Hey, that's there. That'll be fun. That'll be a fun way to spend tonight before I start binging something else tomorrow. So I do think there actually are some good examples, and they are romantic comedies, which were movies that were made 20 years ago. And then recently, Netflix in particular has been like credited with bringing back the romantic comedy. And they have. They make a lot of movies that, you know, either just by subject matter or by formula fit under the banner of romantic comedy. But they do feel different. 
And like I have been trying to sort through my personal feelings and also trying to identify like what are is the there a disposability here. is it i think that there is yes a lack I, of depth or feeling like i'm curious I mean, I, some of it is honestly i think budget yeah. i like you can see the corners being cut in terms of like what it looks like and the extra round of script development and you know in terms of trying to get people's attention andy there's like they're cut every five seconds mm-hmm. so you can't look away from the the screen i'm thinking a lot about always be my maybe which yes. you and i saw together chris ryan at the netflix screening yes. room um and you know that's an interesting one because it has that amazing keanu reeves cameo which just was one of my favorite but movie it's like moments. every yeah. three and a half minutes there's another drone shot flying exactly. over san francisco exactly yeah. and then otherwise that they're mostly done on sets yeah. or, you know not a lot of locations so you can kind of see the budget trimming and and that to me is like oh people sat down or like we're gonna make the movie in a different way and then I think some of it is also I'm like older and so I, these movies are targeted a bit younger which I think they've been very successful in developing a younger audience at Netflix but I'm just like oh okay well now I'm I don't understand all your phone jokes but I think that makes a lot of sense because rom coms have not translated super well to TV shows because they just go on and on. And so yeah. you're right. There's sitcoms, keep... but usually the rom-com has to be buried into a workplace or a family or something. Or, or you have it to, has to be a big payoff, they right? Up. I mean, yeah. the, there's, a, there's a big denouement, right? That comes families, with you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great, great, great content <laughs> for night four of the convention tonight. Um, you know, th- this does make me think that there, there's one other movie sort of mainstream release that is going into theaters this weekend. It's called The Personal History of David Copperfield. It's right. Armando Iannucci's. IP in a way. It it well it is it, big Dickens. It, it is it is IP and <laughs> it is genre. It yeah. is it mm-hmm. is costume costume drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has that Ainuchi kind of arched eyebrow approach to the material. Mm-hmm. But and it's exactly what you're describing. It's um it's a fifteen million dollar movie. Mm-hmm. It's a bit boutique, but also aspiring to be mainstream with. You know, Dev Patel is the star. He's the a recognizable person. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> this is, you should, everybody he mentions, you should like name a TV show they were in as if like, we I would was, only know him from the newsroom. <laughs> I was planning to. <laughs> it was. But I don't think that the personal history of David Copperfield, even though Armando Iannucci, is he the single best TV creator of the last 20 years? He might be. I don't think it it really worked at home for me nearly as well as I wanted it to. Can I throw one more wrinkle into this? And it it, it starts from a place uh, that everyone loves to talk about art in, which is money. Um, Palm Springs reported budget, which might not be accurate, but seems you, you know, just no went full to price it. waterhouse today. Because I, 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 at the beginning, Sean said I was a professional, so I'm trying to, <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to make well, it seem like I knew. Well, you've been going through the Sony League for the last several hours. <laughs> just pouring. <laughs> yeah. Um, was $5 million, which mm-hmm. is basically how much we had for an episode of Briar Patch. And that's incredible <laughs> that they made that movie that money and obviously like star salaries were deferred or whatever probably yeah. but whatever that's an amazing number and i wonder if it is worth paying more attention to these things because while while people you know tv shows cost more than they used to and there's certain services like netflix or hbo that just generally have a bigger budget than other networks like in my experience usa or even something like fx um there's still a wild disparity that i don't know if it always serves the art so what i want to throw at you guys and i didn't i don't know if it's on your rundown but if you look at something like Lovecraft Country, which had an extremely expensive pilot, and you can tell not just um, from the quality of the shots that that Ian came up with, but just the amount of setups. You can and see all the handiwork that went into th- there's it. There's a ton, yeah. and it you know, in the stylistic jumps are carried along by the. Um, I mean, they had the budget to do that, right? And then you go into episode two, and I'm sure their budget was more than budget of Palm Springs. Yeah, but 
it suddenly feels like it's it, more like a TV show again. At least it did until they destroyed they shot what it I thought, in until house. I thought it was a set. Yeah. They should. I, I thought it was going to be a standing set and it wasn't. So it's a bad, maybe it's a bad example, but I wonder if the idea of like, should some TV shows just be a really expensive pilot and call it a movie? Okay, so you're 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 scratching a, a part Getting of my there? brain that is very. I you, want you, you've I, tantalized. I, yes, I, I want to add yeah. one more thing here. Okay. Before is it about we, your golf game on Friday? No, 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 no. Because okay. I, I, I think I, I just want to hit Palm Springs one more time because, you know, throughout the summer, we've been robbed of the like one of the great rites of passage of any summer, which is spending most of it in movie theaters to beat the heat to go see almost anything they throw at us because it's just something to do, and. We haven't had that all year. But one thing that I've noticed, and to some extent, this is a bubble thing because I think blogs go on and, and we need to make content about stuff. But I thought that the obsession, the obsessive quality of the way people received Palm Springs is really notable because what it indicated is the kind of thing 20 years ago, people would have seen that movie three times in the theater, maybe. But in this day and age, you can actually rewind and break down all those moments and everything from that movie, all the all the reaction shots can become memes immediately. I do think that there's something about people unlocking the streaming as a gateway to an intense fan relationship with something that movies have kind of kind of abandoned and and now un, and, and now are forced to abandon because they're just they just can't be in the theaters. I feel like you you guys just you're the perfect batting practice pitchers for all the things that I want to say on this episode. The two the two points you're making are exactly what I've been thinking about, which is one, I don't want to besmirch Lovecraft Country, for example, because I've only seen one episode. I thought it was solid. I think it's it actually has something to say. Yes. But I have thought about the deluge of very expensive shows that don't seem to mean anything to me personally, like Brave New World, for example. Mm -hmm. I tried to watch Brave New World on Peacock, and I was like, I can't believe they spent, how much money do you think they spent on that show? $60 million? I mean, more? More than Briar Patch. <laughs> so they spent a lot of money on Brave the New tea World right now. <laughs> it's iced, and because of that, well, let me put it this way: I had a conversation with Charlie Kaufman this week. Great conversation. Yeah. I, his new movie is called "I'm Thinking of Ending Things." It comes out next week, and it is the perfect example of what you're describing, Chris. Which is it's a movie that when you watch it, you kind of need to watch it again right away, and you can because it's going to be on Netflix. But when I talked to Charlie, he essentially said, "I haven't been able to make a movie since 2008." I can't get anybody to give me money for a movie. And then I look at, I, and I look at, I think I'm, I'm thinking of ending things and I look at Brave New World and I'm like, how can this be? How can Brave New World get 60, 70, $80 million and Charlie Kaufman can't get $5 million to make this very peculiar, admittedly film, but a film that no doubt will have a passionate audience mm -hmm. and will likely meme the film and there will be this trundle of analysis that comes with breaking down the movie. And frankly, a lot of people may hate that movie because it's imperceptible, I think, to most people who watch movies just to kind of relax or chill out. But it does raise this question of sort of like, if everything has to be an IP moment or everything has to be a TV show or everything has to be Palm Springs... You, you're going to lose something in the calculus. You're going to lose something in the business that, and, and it's not exactly romantic comedies. It's not exactly a courtroom drama, but it is a kind of movie that was paid for by, being John Malkovich was paid for by a studio. You know, that's a movie that came out in 2000 theaters and that, that also is not happening anymore. But the idea of, a, it, it, I do think it comes back to, and I'm sorry that this is my role today, but the idea of a business, like of two businesses and one business is we spend a certain amount of money for one maybe if we're lucky, two results, two paydays versus we'll spend this amount of money and we can amortize it, amortize it. I never know how to say that word uh, across multiple years and sell it in multiple regions 
and use it to launch a service which from which we can launch other things and we own it all the way up and down i mean that's just a if it works that's a better business model it's just it's just going to take more you know it's going to get more attention and, and more dollars that way so th- that's an elegant segue to um the snyder cut yes which I don't know if it. Fall- Why did everyone just look at me? I have because I have like you all. You just said the Snyder cut, and I like wasn't even looking at you, Andy, but I felt your eyes on me. One thing that's been fun working with you is oh. that I feel like the universe keeps throwing challenges at you, <laughs> <laughs> and it's really amazing to watch you rise to the occasion over and over again. Here it's I like, am. Sometimes it's just like oh, A I have to go see this movie, but now it's like you. We joked about it too much. Yeah. yeah, you can't yes. have it all. We joked yeah. about Over, it too much. I do. Nights. I can't. And so, and now we right. we put Amanda. She is going to be in, ensnared by the demon bear now. <laughs> I don't know how to classify the Snyder Cut. I, it may be unclassifiable, but it does seem like it is part of a trend in movies, which is the sort of afterlife expansion of a movie. So, The Hateful Eight, when it hit Netflix, was chapterized by Netflix. They went to Quentin Tarantino and they said, can we deliver this movie in four episodic installments so when people watch it, they have to treat it more like a miniseries than a film. Surprisingly, I like, thought... Like The Irishman. A well, miniseries, not a film. I, I mean, I was that was my next point, honestly. Yeah. I, I really think that in many ways, even though The Irishman is, what, three and a half hours, three hours and 20 minutes, Netflix thought of it in the same way. They just thought, you know what, if you pause it after 40 minutes and you come back to it the next night... That's fine by us. Now, Martin Scorsese may hate that idea. And I was surprised that Tarantino was cool with that idea. But those guys aren't dummies. No, they, they, just, they know where the money is. Do you know what I mean? Like, look, Mar- Mar- Marty just signed up for Apple TV. Yeah, the Marty thing is particularly special and unique. And maybe other filmmakers with clout like him, if, if there are that many anymore, will mimic it. But he basically was like, yes, I'm going to make this movie. It's a what's the, it's flower. Killers of the flower, Killers flower moon. Killers of the flower moon with DiCaprio. And he went into it with a studio and they were like, here's your budget. And he was like, cool, cool. I'll definitely follow that. And then just started shooting and just making more and more and more movie. And basically his assumption. So did they which, actually start shooting Killer of the Flower? I yeah. thought that he just was like, it's, it's going to cost 160 I they to do this. I don't know. Oh, well, regardless, the point being, he went full, went, just went for it, knowing that either Netflix or Apple or maybe Amazon was going to come in and be like, we got you. Because it's good for us to be in business with you. And that came true. He just dared. He basically bluffed. He, not many people can do that, but he bluffed his way past the budget. He strikes me as an exception, like you're yeah. saying. And, and the Snyder Cut is slightly different because it originates, as we've talked about many times, which Amanda keeps putting on our outlines. And I'm like, Amanda, again, the Snyder <laughs> Cut, you really want to talk about this? But she does. <laughs> you and, found my edition. <laughs> and, uh, but this is a fan campaign. And obviously, Zack Snyder wasn't able to complete his film because he had a horrible family tragedy. And that's a terrible thing that happened. And that, I think, in some ways, led to this movement. It it created a kind of empathy for him as an artist, especially among the people who cared about his movies the most, that drove the campaign. But, you know, it came true. Like, it's here. We're going to see... Darkseid. That was the reference I was making. The new villain in Justice League is Darkseid. And They're that is adding the, a new villain? Yes. K- Killers of the Flower Moon has not started filming. I okay. just wanted to. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah, I'll put that oh. on the outline for next week. They're still trying to get the budget to get Darkseid in Killers of the Flower <laughs> well, Moon. They can add him later. <laughs> Sorry, go on. I mean, I don't, I'm just processing. I Because I didn't really understand that they were just adding a bunch of stuff. Are they reshooting as well? I think it's primarily CGI that is being added oh, to the great. film. Oh, well, like, great. Chrissy Clemens was cut out of the Joss Whedon completed version of it and has now been added back in. 
Okay. So she's in the trailer. She is a character in this movie. I think related, like she's with a, a Flash character, right? I think she plays Darkseid. Okay. <laughs> also, it's a unique, it, there are a lot of different unique factors that led to this, right? Because Zack Snyder had to step away from making Justice League um, and Joss Whedon was brought in, which at the time was kind of celebrated because people credited him for finding the sort of lighter tone of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Since that movie came out and was not well-received, I would say Joss Whedon's reputation has fallen in a number of areas. Um, and regardless of his own uh, personal failings and shortcomings that have emerged, um, his stewardship of the Marvel Universe is also not remembered that fondly. Yeah. Um, it's like so, ancient history. So it does yeah. present an opportunity to say, well, I, this never was, right? Like, this never was the, the one true vision of this. I think the essential problem is that they're... Well, I'll let Amanda speak to it. Why there maybe shouldn't be one true vision of this. I mean, four hours is just, it's four hours, right? Four hours. That's a lot to ask for me, personally. And I know I'm not looking forward to it. But it it is interesting. To me, there's a real difference between, say, I guess, turning a movie that everyone hated into a four-hour episodic show with new material and maybe reshooting things. And then just like watching the Irishman over four nights. Mm -hmm. And some of that is, I can't believe I'm about to credit Zack Snyder with intentionality, but at least that theoretically, maybe the new Justice League would be episodic in a way. I, like It might be. I mean, the, 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 the difference is that one is context and one is text. You know, the Irishman was purposeful. The Snyder cut is actionable after a movement. So he Snyder can choose specifically to treat it more like a TV show as opposed to the presumption of the viewer watching The Irishman that like, hey, this is basically a TV show, you know? And Story, story though. I think he'll edit. I mean, like maybe he edits in cliffhangers for those four nights. But I have a question for you, which yeah. is that no matter how perhaps like you might be like, I don't really want to see this superhero movie or whatever. Yeah. You do get up for the event. Like you kind of do get fired up for like it's it's like it's coming out. This big blockbuster is coming out, and we like to go to the movies and do that. Yeah. Do you think that you feel like any of, of the of like a simulacrum of that feeling for a four part miniseries event? No, because it's not one event; it's four events, yes. and this is what I'm getting at. It's like I and I, I do think that there is something to the fact of I, the Irishman is not a TV show because it is one story told over time. It is like a contained event as opposed to four different things. And that, to me, is, like, the only distinction that I'm holding on to anymore in terms of TV and movies. And, like, that's how I understand it. It's, like, you've asked for my time. You've asked for this event moment. Like, here we go. And then it's, like, oh, you want me to come back next week? I don't know. That's a commitment that I'm, like, not prepared to make, especially when there's so much else going on. So if it were, I mean, this is really, like, Sophie's choice between like <laughs> versions of, of Justice League or, you know, but I, I think for me, it feels like more of an event if it's one night only. Yeah. Yeah. But is it, is it devil's advocate to say that maybe this is not TV replacing movies so much as it's TV replacing the collectible DVD market? Because there have been examples in the past of movies that have been released with director's cuts or extended footage and yeah, like Ridley Scott's Kingdom of Heaven. One of your favorites. Yeah. Oh but, my God. Everybody drink if you had that on the bingo of to, doing a podcast. Weirdly, with Chris it's, Ryan. it's on page four of the rundown. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? And so, because they're eventizing it, 
we're all feel like we're forced to pay attention to it. But if it really is just kind of a weird Twitter dare that a major multinational corporation has accepted um, solely for a few people, and at the end of it, isn't this also kind of dead IP like New Mutants? Because Zack Snyder's vision of Darkseid and the DCU isn't that's not an active concern, is it? Like, they're, well, they, Ben Affleck it, is returning to the series for the Flash, you know. So, but so isn't Michael Keaton also? Isn't that just like a like flash through it's multiverse, bro. multiverse yeah. stuff? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, you guys have talked about it on the show. Amanda won't look me in the eye and talk to me about what's going on at DC. You know, it's just not one of her That's interests. True. I love Wonder Woman. That's true. But you, the, the idea that Amanda like, speaks for America. Yeah. <laughs> so don't act like she's on the Well, fringe. just the idea that there are like six Joker properties going at any one given time. You guys have talked about that a lot. And that is simultaneously confusing and also just kind of how culture should be right now, which is just like you get a Joker and you get a Joker and you get a Joker and they're all different. And they have all different tonalities. And one is about an incel and one is about a hilarious stand-up comedian. And that's okay. And I mean, what that's basically all of society and culture <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. It's very true. <laughs> From one end to the other. I guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around. Well, okay. Let me ask you this, Andy. Mm-hmm. Do your kids have any idea about any of this stuff? Do they have any idea of like a container? What is a, an appropriate amount of time to watch something to its completion, for example? Um, great question. I think that they were concerned that there wasn't a lot of the Jack Kirby influence in Snyder's <laughs> version of DCU, like like Mr. Miracle, Mother Boxes, all that stuff. Yeah. So I, these yeah. hope, they're hopeful that that will be brought in. <laughs> I know that um, is, but lol. Uh, I'll say that they are, my older child in particular, is militant about correcting people if they say, what show are you watching? And she says, it's a movie. And that's probably because she likes the big picture. But she also watch. watches like classic musicals. Like she has like a cl- <laughs> I got a concept of like great movies. Almost. Yeah, but I but I but I definitely think. But also in terms of, um, no, there's still maybe this is just our household. Like movies are an event because it means more than a half hour of television at one time, so they are coveted. Um, but beyond that, no. I mean, like for example. If, if the cal- yearly calendar is marked by Pixar releases, uh, the w- w- Onward was something that she'd seen the trailer. They had seen the trailer for before uh, the best film of 2019, Frozen 2. And so they were aware of it and they knew it was coming. Uh, and then when I told them, guess what? It's going to be available on TV instead. That was just happiness. Like that great. Like So it, it was still a movie, but it was a movie that they could watch quickly. So Are, are they anticipating Mulan? In that same way? I haven't mentioned it to them because I don't want to pay $30 for it. So I'm going to see how long <laughs> I can string this out. They, But in terms of like, I think what you're asking in another way though is like by having everything on the same interface, yes. is, there, is there a flattening effect? Right. And to that, I will say yes. And this is something we say on the watch a lot, which is if you ask them, do they like Mulan? My older daughter would say, I love Mulan, especially Mulan 2. Now Mulan 2 is like many Disney sequels, sort of straight-to-video B-minus schlock that is not necessarily canon or whatever that means anymore. But for her, it's just like, I can't believe it. There's a Cinderella 2. And there's a Cinderella 3. There's Lady and the Tramp 2, Scamp's Tale, which is literally Lady and the Tramp again with their kid. And all of it is available on Disney+, and all of it is of equal value and entertainment. I think that's the perfect place to turn the car onto the watch highway. Yeah, I agree. So in in the next episode of The Watch, we're going to be talking about the ways in which I think TV is kind of turning into movies. So is and this you a, guys can push back on that if you like. Is this a cliffhanger TV style or is this the like sting at the end of the credits? 
where you're setting up the next installment. Sting, the musical artist? <laughs> is st- <laughs> The Sting. They the beloved 1970s movie. film. No, Sting should sing Fields of Gold at the end of every Especially film. Especially Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> as, my, as my father said in the early 90s about Fields of Gold, a fine song. <laughs> okay, if you want to hear more of this uh, very serious and important conversation about movies and television, Please flip over to the watch right now. Uh, Amanda, as usual, thank you. Andy and Chris, thanks for being here in my backyard. Appreciate it. Now let's go to my conversation with Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves. Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by NHTSA. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed, but let's take a moment to look at some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet too. You could get arrested and incur huge legal expenses. You could possibly even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking, designate a sober driver, or call a taxi. If someone you know has been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing's for sure, you're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over. Just honored to be joined by the great Keanu Reeves and the great Alex Winter. Thanks, guys, for joining the show. Let's just start right up top. Um, the characters are so specific and iconic to fans. Was it difficult at all for you to recapture or revive the Bill and Tedness in your performances? Um, you know, it was a very contemplated, thoughtful uh, <laughs> approach that Alex and I took. I'm being sincere. And... Uh, you know, the writers gave us a great script and we loved the premise that we were meeting these characters all these years later and just how life had impacted them and the, where their lives were now. And we didn't want to play caricatures of our, you know, earlier selves and nostalgia, you know. So we really, Alex and I worked with the writers and with the director, Dean Pariseau, and we, we worked with a lot together just on the script and, and our approach and what we were doing. We had never really, we'd never contemplated doing another one of these. And, and um, uh, you know, we've remained friends and we've made, remained friends with Chris and Ed, the writers, Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon. We've never talked about doing another movie in all of our conversations and not in any serious way, sometimes just as a lark. Uh, so when they brought us this idea some years ago, seriously, um, the thing that, that we sparked to was that there seemed to be a way to play them, that, that the, whole, the whole conceit concept of, of finding Bill and Ted all these years later and they haven't written the song and they've got you know, their lives and their kids and their adult responsibilities, it, it immediately seemed like a really funny idea from a comic perspective, but I think also for Keanu and myself, uh, quite surprisingly, it, it felt like something we could do. Like, it was like, oh, I could, I could see how we could play these parts. Um, and that then took work. We had to figure out how that was going to work, uh, to Keanu's point. Um, and that took quite a bit of thought and, and prep. Um, and we did take that quite seriously. You know, we, we wanted them to feel lived in and, and to feel the, the gravitas of, the, of life and, have, and what that had done to these guys. But we didn't want them to, A, be somebody else other than the guys you knew. And we didn't want them to be like carbon copies of the guys you last saw. 
Before the filming began, when was the last time you guys were together holding guitars in your hand? Oh, gosh. Long time. Yeah. Keanu kept playing. I gave up. (laughs) (laughs) Like, could it have been 1991? Is that possible? No, it would have after that. But but not long after that. Okay, maybe 91 and a half. (laughs) (laughs) What was the most fun version of yourselves that you guys got to play? Sort of future versions from this film? I mean, I think from a makeup standpoint or special makeups, the, the prisoners, but the characters, they all had their yeah. own joy. So we play about, we play, what is it, five versions of ourselves? So four versions. Wait, us, there's us, prison, the thing, oh God, four versions of ourselves. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they, it was cool just how emotionally, because for the most part, the other Bill and Ted's are really mad at us. <laughs> <laughs> mad mad and, sad. and sad. Future us is. And so yeah. that was fun to play. Was there anything that you guys couldn't do or didn't do in the first two films that you felt like it was important to do in this movie? I don't know. I don't know if it's important. Um, I felt like it was very gratifying to play so many different shades of Bill and Ted. Um, that if we were going to come back to, and this was inherent in what the guys envisioned when they, when they constructed the new idea, but from an acting standpoint, uh, it's quite gratifying if we're going to come back all these years later uh, to not just regurgitate some version of the previous two movies, but to actually explore other aspects of the characters. Uh, I'm really glad that they did. I mean, they're, you know, they're good writers and they didn't want to just rehash themselves, but uh, but they went even further than they could have or even needed to probably. Um, and that gave Keanu and myself the opportunity to also do that from an acting standpoint to like, let's dig in and figure out who these guys are. And, and we would add little you know, details or depth or whatever to, to the different versions of themselves and even to the way they relate to their daughters, the way they relate to their wives, um, the way Ted relates to his dad. Like there were, there was lots of stuff to play with here. Uh, that was really fun and also challenging. If you guys could go back in time yourselves and bring a musician to the present day, who is the person that you would want to bring? Mm. Uh, who are we? Who are we bringing back? Uh, so uh, I guess from the past, they could be dead, and they here we are. Man, I wouldn't mind seeing hanging out with John Lennon. Yeah, that'd be pretty fantastic. Um, for me. Maybe Miles. Um, I'd be curious to see what Miles Davis would do with the world we live in today. I have a feeling it would be pretty hardcore. <laughs> when you guys were, you know, in the first two films, the music that Bill and Ted cared about and were playing was sort of at the center of culture in a lot of ways. And it's not as much anymore. Was that something that you talked about as you were working on the script or as you thought about what musicians should participate in this movie? I don't think we, Alex, we didn't have any really input in that, didn't we? I mean, Oh no, that was, that was, uh, those conversations would have been between Chris and Ed. Um, uh, we, we talked about, you know, how Bill and Ted fit into the world, uh, musically we talked about, you know, we were interested in, in, in what the daughters, uh, were doing musically and their relationship to music and how music had, had changed and evolved, you know, since our era. The one thing that, that we that was important to us 
uh, and it was important to the writer. So it wasn't a, a, a debate as much of a, as a, as something that we all kind of drove towards was, this is not a nostalgia piece. It was not about, uh, two people trying to go back to a style of music that was bygone. It was more about the, uh, you know, Bill and Ted always loved music because, you know, of the power of music. And, and that would be just as true today as it would have been, you know, back in the day. And that's why we, we love the, you know, the idea that the writers had for us when you get to, when you find us at the beginning, um, because even though we haven't succeeded in writing the song to save the world, we're still exploring musically, right? We're still like, we haven't become cynical. Um, we're still trying to drive into music. We're not just like two guys playing the exact same type of music that you just last saw us play 25 years later. Bridget and Samara have an uncanny, not just visual, but kind of vocal and emotional resemblance to Bill and Ted. Did you guys have to put them through some sort of Bill and Ted boot camp? How did that work? No. <laughs> no. They came with their own <laughs> supplies of talent and creativity and imagination. Um, you know, we had a chance to, I mean, I don't yeah. know how it impacted them in their performances, but, you know, we did get to do read-throughs and rehearse together. Um, and spend time together. Both Alex and I feel like they did marvelous performances, and it's not a tough, it's a tough tone and roles to play. And I thought that their individuality and creativity and how they carried the, the film was really cool. We were, we were eager, uh, as were they, uh, for them not to be knockoffs of us. And not to feel that uh, anyone expected them to to be showing up and and pretending to be us. Um, it was really important to the story that they be their own people. That's kind of the whole thematic point of of their characters. So, um, and they're very talented, so they had no trouble with that. <laughs> yeah, they went out and developed their own versions of of who they were. So, just to wrap up, guys, we end every episode of the show by asking folks. What's the last great thing they've seen? Have you guys been watching anything good in quarantine? The last great thing I've seen. It was it was really cool just to um uh to look at some Wachowski films. You know, it was cool just to actually revisit and see because I hadn't watched them for a while. I like to watch Reloaded and Revolutions. I mean, I know that it's just they're such wonderful films. Yeah, amazing. At my house, we've been, we were waiting with bated breath for Hamilton to hit uh, VOD. And so we've all been bathing in, in Hamilton, the film and the soundtrack, kind of around the clock. There's also been great music that's gotten released over the quarantine. You know, the Fiona Apple album, the Bob Dylan album. I mean, are like, those have gotten me through this pandemic, those two albums. They're so unbelievably great. Um, so there's been incredible art that's been coming out. That's awesome. Well, I think the Bill and Ted Face the Music is going to make people happy too. So thanks guys for taking the time. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Sean. Thank you. Thank you to Amanda, Andy, Chris, Alex, and Keanu, and Bobby Wagner and Kaya McMullen. Today's episode of The Big Picture was brought to you by NHTSA. Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed, but that still doesn't stop everyone. 
You could get arrested, you could incur huge legal expenses, and you could possibly even lose your job. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing's for sure, you're wrong if you think it's no big deal. Drive sober or get pulled over.